Hello and welcome to this Faber Poetry Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this special two-part programme is Christopher Reed. I met Christopher recently at Faber's offices in Bloomsbury to talk to him about his latest book, a farce in verse called Six Bad Poets, which is the focus of the first part of the programme. And also in the second part, to look back at a career in poetry that has included not only a prolific output as a poet for adults and children, but also work as an anthologist, editor, publisher, and even for a time academic. There can be few people better placed than Christopher Reed, then, to turn a satirical eye on the world of contemporary poetry and its ambitions, vanities, and rivalries. Six Bad Poets charts the crisscrossing fates of his protagonists, who are all trying to make, cling on to, or re-establish their reputations on London's literary scene. Christopher, whom William Boyd has called the modern master of the long narrative poem, tells their tale in six parts, each of six sestinas, itself a six times six verse form. The return to London of Charles Prime, an ancient clapped-out poet, after a spell at Her Majesty's pleasure, is what sets the wheels of the plot in motion. Charles, with a weather eye turned to the main chance, is back in town in search of a publishing world that used to booze away the afternoon in light-shy literary pubs, and which has now almost entirely vanished. Hard on his heels is Jonathan Wilderness, a young poet on the make, who sniffs an opportunity for literary success if he can secure a contract to write Prime's biography. Meanwhile, Jane Steep is a young poet, still in search of her voice, whose path will cross with that of Jonathan, and of Derek Dufton, a poet-academic whose career is on the slide. At the top of poetry's pecking order is Antonia Candling, the doyenne of London poetry, whom we first encounter sitting at her desk in a poetic reverie, surrounded by her coloured kilims and netsukes. But Antonia is engaged in a rivalrous relationship of her own with Bryony Butters, poet, novelist and more besides, for whom every experience is potentially worth knocking into verse. Given their delusions and ambitions, it's not surprising that these six get themselves into some exquisitely awkward and funny situations, which Christopher captures deftly in his verse. Before we talked about the poem, I asked Christopher to introduce and read a section from it. Well, I'll read this section. This is written in 36 sections, this, this long poem. And, and this is one where one of my six heroes, uh, who's called Jonathan Wilderness, an ambitious young poet, is meeting for the first time the man who's going to become his literary agent, who's called Bill Gubney. And Jonathan's idea for um, money-making, as well as writing his poems, is um, to write the biography of this old forgotten um, poet, uh, Charles Prime, who's um, recently returned to London, and Jonathan is chasing him all around London, in vain as it happens, in the hope of um, capturing this subject for biography. And this is when Jonathan meets uh, his agent, Jonathan Wilderness, alongside his pursuit of Charles Prime, has been dashing around London on various errands no less urgent, his general purpose being to fly the flag of his genius as conspicuously as possible, he's like a puppy with his first direction. By sheer push, he's gained an introduction to the great Bill Gubney, in whose Thameside suite he's attempting to look both brilliant and humble, as Gubney dishes out the lowdown. Poetry? I'd rather try to flog bottled piss from a stall outside a gent's. 
This is Jonathan's first meeting with a literary agent, a type unlikely to tolerate contradiction. Of course, he says, with a nod and a flick of his ponytail, he can see what's what, and even as his heart feels increasingly leaden, he knows he's going to have to play ball. Before he can slip in Mr. Gubney or even Bill, his host is booming again. You seem an intelligent young fellow, in spite of your hairdo. Listen, forget your rhymes. Scrap the entire collection. Wake up. Get a life. Jonathan is beginning to sweat wretchedly, but then there's a flicker of hope. This old has-been-soho figure, what's his name? If he's the real deal and no bull, I reckon I could get you a sweet advance on that one. A little more diligent sniffing and digging. Closer inspection of the shameful secrets, the soiled linen. Well, every clown, they say, has a silver lining, and Jonathan's almost grateful to this fat flake as he shakes hands with him. The connection, however, will be purely financial. Double standards? No, simply the expedient of a creative artist obliged to get by on his wits. Thank you very much indeed. Christopher, you take as a, an epigraph for this book a little bit of Byron where he says he had half a mind to tumble down to prose, but I'm guessing you felt no such temptation. Was, it, was this project resolutely a vast project from its conception? No, not at all. Um, in the past, I've dreamed of being a prose writer and a writer of prose fiction, but um, I'm now 64. Uh, it's pretty obvious that I'm not a prose fiction writer. I just don't know how to do it. I've tried. I've tried and, um, and, and, and come to grief. Um, so I've accumulated ideas that I might have used if I were, had those skills. And there's a poem in my most recent book, um, Nonsense, called um, Professor Winterthorne's Journey, which I had an idea for long before, and Six Bad Poets is uh, in the same way something I... Well, actually, this is a very old idea. I think I possibly about 15 years old, when I still dreamed I might be a novelist or, or a short story writer or something like that. And I didn't really have a clear idea of the plotting. It was actually turning to verse finding a verse form that in a sense directed the plot, that gave me the ability to get on with the job. When I um, dreamt this up 15 years ago, it was just an idea based on a title, really. Uh, the idea of six different poets spinning around, having a, an effect on each other, mostly uh, for the worse. And um, a, a kind of farce was, was what, I, what I was dreaming of. But... Um, I was only liberated to, to, to write it when I conceived the very complex form in which this, this book is written. And I guess you'll say if I ask you whether the poets are based on real people that they're a distillation more than, a, yeah, more than a, any kind of real a, models. A, a, there's absolutely no satirical portrait painting here. There's no, no direct caricature going on. But there, are, but there are certainly types that one recognises, types of... I mean, they go from the, the young would-be poet who's trying to find her voice, the, the rather arrogant young male poet, the academic, and all the, all the way through to, the, um, to Charles oh, yes, Prime. Well, if you by types you mean believable individuals, yes, I'll go with that. This is obviously the result of having been a part of and also an observer of the, the poetry scene in London for, for several yeah, decades. Yeah, yeah I've, 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 I've been... Uh, uh, a foot soldier in the poetry scene for something like 40 years, I suppose. So plenty of time to, to gather the material. 
But your period as editor, poetry editor at Faber, must have given you a, a particularly good vantage point to see how the, the poetry world operates, how the, how the interactions work, which perhaps a poet writing on his or her own wouldn't, wouldn't have quite such an insight to. Well, um, I, I guess um, as a poetry editor, you're invited to parties and you meet more people. Perhaps uh, it's a very good thing to get out, get out of one's home and out and about. Uh, so to that extent, yes, um, it gave me a, a vantage point. But I, I think um, anybody with an observant eye could, could have picked up um, all the details that I've done. And there's a sense of a, a sort of vanished age of, the, of poets spending the, the day in Soho pubs, the sort of generation of Charles Prime, which is, which is now gone and which, which Jonathan Wilderness, the young, the young poet, is sort of trying to, trying to capture, trying to plug into. And even, even Prime himself, when he comes back to London, finds that that, that world has almost entirely vanished apart from one, one pub. Yes, I mean, uh, the, the, the pub I've invented for Charles Prime to get drunk in is probably um, an, an impossible fiction now. But I like the fact that I've placed it in Soho, where that style of life used to be either graciously or ungraciously lived, and people spent more time at the bar than, than at their desks. That's a Soho that's presumably gone, but actually, if you go into... The, the French pub or the coach and horses, um, it's full most times of the day. So um, somebody's, somebody's uh, managing to get away from their work. By contrast, there's a pub in Islington where a peculiar form of torture uh, is taking place. What, what, what kind of world were you seeking to tap into there? Oh, you, it's, it's not actually a pub. You mean the old Knacker's Yard, which is um, a sort of converted old Knacker's Yard. <laughs> where they hold um, cultural events, including poetry readings. And um, there's a thing um, that's open to everybody. Anybody could have been satirical about poetry readings. They're, they're, they're very popular these days. They weren't when I first came to London. But luckily, they're, 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 they've grown in popularity now. Um, some of them are great fun, and some of them are, as you put it, a form of torture. I, th I think the narrative voice in the poem describes it in, in similar terms. Yeah, that's quite right. It's um, uh, I make no bones that this one is, uh, is is rather hard to endure. My my poor young poet, um, who's still aspiring to be a poet, she's called Jane Steep, drags herself from South London, where she lives and works, up to North London, which is a terrifying place across the river, and um, eventually locates uh, the old Knacker's Yard and finds the performances for the next um, two or three hours pretty hard to endure. You mentioned earlier finding a form for this book and it being a, a complex structure. Can you say a little bit about how that evolved as, as a plan? Something like this. Uh, having six characters in my head and deciding at the outset that they needed to bump into each other as often as possible, I thought, well, what kind of structure can I give this? I thought that possibly multiples of six would help me, so that there are six chapters altogether, and each chapter breaks down into six sections. And each section consists of 36, in other words, six times six um, stanzas, 36 lines, and you've got something there that's pretty like a sestina. In fact, I use the sestina 
very loosely, very loosely indeed, as my, my, my basic building block. And the, the book itself is 36 sestinas, so kind of a sestina squared. And I, I just thought, if, if I, that's, that, that, that was established at the outset, that, that was what I knew I must try and do. But um, because of the complexity of the, the, the sestina or pseudo-sestina form, you can see that it's quite difficult to bring off. And I just thought, well, even if that's the case, I'm going to allow myself to just start at the beginning, set one of my characters going, and see what the form generates. And in, in effect, what the form is doing for me is helping me a lot, great deal. It made me choose certain paths that I might not otherwise have done and, and, and made me have to think all the harder about how to engineer moves between the characters and, 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 and the various leaps and the plotting that happen. I, I regard um, the form itself as a kind of, well, a, a great boon to me, but where the characters are concerned, it's like their fate. They're, they're made to dance through this very elaborate square dance, as it were, kind of barn dance that they do. And barn dances, of course, are, can be hideously complicated things. But they manage to get to the end of it. Um, only one of the characters perishes. Um, one of the other characters is wonderfully liberated in, a, in an ambiguous kind of way. Maybe um, you shouldn't say too much. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't say too much. Let's leave it at that. Did, did you yourself know exactly what permutations they were going to go through when you began no, writing? No, no, no. That had to be. That had to be. I had to obey the form. So once I'd got to the end of the first one, I'd established. I had my six characters ready, and I knew what their, their potential was. They were quite rounded um, uh, characters already by the time I'd given them names and placed them geographically on the map of London. Um, but it, I, I needed to write the first section before I could get the one character who's alluded to at the end of there going not in the very next section, but in the section after. And I'd already decided that one of the other characters was related historically to my first character, um, and she would come next. And what she she goes through in that first section uh, again has has consequences. But I didn't know what they would be until I'd written that section. Then I had a, an inkling. So the whole thing was was a matter of um, faith, really, on my part, that this would all work out. And it was hugely enjoyable when I got to the end of each section without mishap. And uh, you know, said, I think, by, by, by fiction writers that you have to end a chapter, or at least as a writer, you have to put, uh, end your day's work with a sense of what's going to happen, happen next. So I made, always made sure that I planted something which would be the catalyst for action later. If the, um, the manuscript of any of those six poets had landed on your desk when you were a, an editor at Faber, would, you, would any of them have got a lunch out of you, do you think? Well, um, I'm quite... The only, the only one whose poems are actually quoted is, is Charles Prime, the old, the old fellow. And I quite like them. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know what the rest of his work would be like, but I, I enjoyed inventing the, those one or two quotes that, that, that I use in the poem. I tried not to make them ridiculous. They're slightly old-fashioned. They're in a slightly antiquated style. Nonetheless, they're quite dignified as, as, as little lines of verse. 
And he's, he's made it into a couple of anthologies in the book, hasn't he? Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's easy, um, in the, but he hasn't written poems for about 50 years. And, and um, he, he still regards himself as a poet, nonetheless. And uh, quite what he does to, to justify that, um, that self-conception remains unclear in, 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 in the book. But, but um, he's leading, if not, if not actually being a poet, he's leading the poet's life. None of the poets has started to dictate to you, though, so far? Uh, no, luckily not. <laughs> the picture of the poetry scene that emerges is one in which you really have to be a bit of an operator to survive. We don't know what the young female poet Jane Freed is going to make of her career, but there's definitely a sense that you have to be a bit of a, a character with an eye to the, the main chance and, um, and not be too worried about who you might trample on in, on the way. Well, um, I... I, my, my characters themselves think that. I'm not certain that I do. They think that they have to operate. But of course, uh, very few of their schemes turn out as, as they would have wished. <laughs> They're frustrated, things go wrong. And I mean, that, that, that's where a lot of the farce in this comes from. The, 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 their plans, however neatly conceived, all, always go to pot. I was talking to Christopher Reed, whose latest book, Six Bad Poets, is out now in hardback. For more information about it, and all of Christopher's books, visit faber.co.uk. I hope you'll want to listen to the second part of this special two-part Faber Poetry podcast, in which I talk to Christopher about, among other things, his early association with the Martian School of Poetry, his translations of Katerina Brack, an Eastern European poet whom he invented, and his Costa award-winning collection written about the death of his wife, A Scattering. You can make sure you never miss the Faber podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. The full Faber podcast archive is also available on SoundCloud. Just type Faber Book SoundCloud in your search engine, and you'll be taken straight to it. Until next time, Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.